0: Welcome to Deconstructing Yourself, the podcast for modern mutants interested in mindfulness, meditation, awakening, deepening your practice, social justice, and more. My name is Michael W. Taft, your host on the podcast, and in this episode, I'm in conversation with Kelly Boyes. Kelly Boyes is a consultant with the United Nations Foundation, where she helped to create and works to deliver a mindfulness and well-being program for UN humanitarian aid workers on the front lines in the Middle East and beyond. She's also a freelance producer at Sounds True Publishing and the author of the forthcoming book entitled The Blind Spot Effect, How to Stop Missing What's Right in Front of You. Kelly is a mindfulness teacher and founding advisor for the meditation app Simple Habit. She teaches retreats and workshops at spots like the Esalen Institute. And now, without further ado, I give you the episode that I call Seeing Your Blind Spots. Kelly, welcome to Deconstructing Yourself.
1: It's good to be here. So you
0: are an author and meditation teacher who worked for a long time, uh, I believe, teaching iRest. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, that's right. Integrative Restoration.
0: Integrative Restoration. Tell us just a little bit about that.
1: That is a form of yoga nidra, which Richard Miller developed. He's a clinical psychologist.
0: So let's just pretend that everyone on earth doesn't know what yoga nidra is.
1: Yoga nidra is akin to what happens in the very last pose when you're in yoga class, the corpse pose. Shavasana. Shavasana. Everybody's
0: favorite moment.
1: Yes. Nidra means sleep in Sanskrit. It also means state. So... Traditionally, it's known as the yogic sleep where you do meditation while in a lying down position. Yeah. And what Richard Miller did, he's a clinical psychologist, he took the foundational practice of yogic meditation and he added an exploration of states. So he takes that word nidra and he translates it as states. So an exploration or a meditation throughout any state, including an emotion, a belief, a sense of self, all of that. And so integrative restoration integrates the psyche, the parts of ourselves that we've disowned that need to kind of come home and get integrated back into the fullness of who we are. And it also restores our senses to their natural state at the same time. And it's a 10-step protocol, very simple. I've worked with this with veterans, with prison inmates, lots of different settings.
0: Fabulous. So it's kind of a Hindu, tantric, relaxation, exploration.
1: Yes, on the secular side of that. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Yeah.
0: And then also, I believe you've done quite a bit of non-dual type exploration as well. What, yes. What form has that taken for you?
1: Well, it originally took the form of just sort of waking up in Ohio 10 years ago.
0: <laughs> Ooh, tell us about that. <laughs> what happened 10 years ago it's... in Ohio?
1: <laughs> what? Well, Nothing much, actually. I was actually living with my parents. I was back at home after you know, traveling around the world for 10 years and living outside of the States. And I was suffering, I'd say, in a lot of different ways, primarily through the mode of anxiety. Mm. And there was one day I was reading a book. I was taking a bath, finishing the book. I got out of the bath, laid down on my bed. And looked at the wall, and I just looked at a calendar on the wall, and I was just kind of staring at the wall, and suddenly I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that Well, would you look at that? I'm the calendar looking at myself. How strange is that? I had no, you know, prior formulation for these kinds of things. I ran up and went to the bathroom, looked in the mirror and went, I'm looking at myself from everywhere. This is amazing. (laughs) None of this is personal. Oh, my goodness. You know, I had sort of days of insight that flooded in after that.
0: And had the book prepped you for this in any way?
1: I don't know. You know, the book was The Wisdom of Yoga by Stephen Cope. I was just getting into yoga, into teaching yoga, and, you know, perhaps it did, I think. That's kind of a story, and I don't even actually remember the book very well. Yeah. But that is the book that I was reading.
0: So here Mm -hmm. you were, the whole world was observing itself, and then what happened after that?
1: (laughs) Well, the insight, I would say, closed down in some way, where... The fundamental insight that was there didn't close down, Mm -hmm. but my way of experiencing myself in the world certainly closed back into a constricted, anxious individual. Sweet. Yeah. yeah. Back home. Oh, yeah. Right. So fast forward 10 years. <laughs> you know, I, I think I popped on YouTube, found Shanti and have been doing long retreats, including, you know, a year kind of off the grid and exploring the mind and both the deep insights into the nature of mind, nature of self, no self, however you want to say it, and also what it looks like to be fully human and learning what is being learned. Mm.
0: And now you actually lead retreats in non-dual practice Mm -hmm. or non-dual awareness. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I understand that you have a new book out by everybody's favorite spiritual publisher, Sounds True.
1: Yes. I'm excited about this book. It's the first one. What's it called? It's called The Blind Spot Effect, How to Stop Missing What's Right in Front of You.
0: So, Kelly, tell us about The Blind Spot Effect. How do I stop missing what's right in front of me?
1: Hmm. Well, the first way to stop missing what's right in front of you is to slow down, and in that slowing down you see what's there and you don't see what's not there. And in order to do that, you know, you really have to turn up the resolution on your seeing and turn down the noise and the signal, and meditation can help tremendously to do this. Yeah. With blind spots, I find there are so many different ways we go blind. I find it's nice to look through the lens, no pun intended, of the actual physical blind spot in our eye. You know, there's this place on our retina where the uh, optic nerve fibers enter through the optic disc
0: Isn't it called like the fovea or something?
1: Oh, maybe it is. I don't even know. I'm not a scientist, so there's just something going on in there where the nerve fibers come in and there are no photoreceptor cells to see light.
0: Right, in that one spot on your retina. Exactly.
1: And you can see your own blind spot on this. You can even do a test on, just Google it and you can actually see your own blind spot. But what I find interesting there is that we don't have photoreceptor cells to see that place in our vision, but we fill it in with the surrounding detail. And so we don't even know that we're blind.
0: We kind of fudge it in.
1: Exactly. And at the same time, that blind spot helps us to see the rest of what's in our field of vision. So it serves a function. Mm. And I see that our psychological blind spots are patterns that we have that hold us back, that drive us to do behaviors that hurt other people, hurt ourselves, Those served a function originally. You know, they helped us see or they helped us go blind to something that, you know, we couldn't digest at the moment so that we could see the rest of what was there.
0: So give me an example of what you're describing.
1: So an example of a blind spot, the formation of a blind spot would be, you know, I'm young and I stumble and fall, and I go to my caregiver and say, ouch, it hurt, and the caregiver misattunes and doesn't respond in a way that meets me where I am.
0: There's nothing wrong with you.
1: Exactly. Oh, and that there's nothing wrong with me goes right into my psyche, and I start having to believe there's nothing wrong with me. I can't have something wrong with me. Mm. And this... Blind spot creates all these different patterned behaviors to try to still get our needs met. And there's a way that our system begins to skew in a particular direction without our knowing it. It's just the framework for how we see life, for how we view ourselves.
0: So it's a kind of unconscious bias.
1: Yes, exactly. Exactly. And actually in the book, I speak to Daniel Kahneman's work, who... Mm who speaks of thinking styles and our cognitive biases. And he basically says, hey, we're not as rational as we think we are. And let me show you all the ways we systematically go wrong. Yeah. And so in seeing our blindness, we start to illuminate these patterns and systems of thinking that actually hinder us rather than help us.
0: So in that example of there's nothing wrong with me, how would that turn into a long-term bias? What would that look like if it was affecting one's life in an ongoing way?
1: Well, an inability to acknowledge vulnerability, Mm. which is so key in emotional intelligence. If I'm able to acknowledge and meet my own hurt because I'm not scared of it, or I know that there's some way that in that meeting of my own hurt, I'm going to learn something and I'm going to take care of myself, then I'm going to refuse that hurt in the people around me. Mm. It's just going to happen. It's like an equation.
0: Okay. So here we have this childhood moment. We form a blind spot and then it becomes a long-term bias and suddenly I can't acknowledge my own vulnerability. How do I work with that?
1: Mm. Well, the first part is seeing it, and we need, you know, trusted friends to help us see where we're blind, and I I go into this further in the book, but in acknowledging our vulnerability, then we're able to see more clearly what is right in front of us, and we stop making up and hallucinating, as Anil Seth, the neuroscientist from London says, you know, we basically... Hallucinate and create a reality. It's like this predictive brain that says to ourselves, This is how reality is. You know, we're bringing in our confirmation bias and all of that, and we create a story, a coherent story about the world. Well, one of the first steps when you acknowledge your own vulnerability that you really might not know, that story begins to loosen and become more flexible. And you start to question. So one of the ways is questioning what coherent story am I holding about myself and the world around me? So some people might take it in like I'm not worthy to have love and care. Or some people might point their finger out at the world. You're not worthy. I'm amazing. We do see that leadership in the good old United States of America right now. You know, there's just massive blind spot operating and someone who's absolutely unwilling slash looking apparently incapable of meeting their own vulnerability.
0: Yeah, that's the current administration is demonstrating that on almost a epic meta level of super blindness.
1: Exactly. Yeah.
0: Okay, so would you say that the blind spot effect book has techniques or is it mainly a kind of an exploration of how this works and an invitation? What's the structure?
1: Yeah. It's an exploration of all the different ways we go blind. So visually, attentionally, emotionally, cognitively, in love, Mm -hmm. you know, all those different ways. And then how does our intuition work for us and work against us? How does our lightning fast decision making capacity work for us and against us? And there are a bunch of practices interspersed throughout the book. And it's actually very practical in the midst of that sort of overview of blind spots. And... One of the key things that we look at in the book is what's your core story and what are the associated emotions and associated patterns that go along with it that might be keeping you blind? I mean, don't we all want to know? It's like it's scary to think of how blind we might be that everyone around us might know and it might be totally obvious to them the certain kind of patterns in our own behavior that we don't see. So there's something both kind of frightening about it and exciting to be able to step into our own vulnerability enough to look.
0: Isn't it the case that everyone but you knows your blind spot, right? I mean, your friends, your family, everyone knows exactly what it
1: is. Yeah, well, they often know the behaviors yeah, or they know that you have this need, you know, you have this need for safety that seems to drive you that, you know, that's mine. Yeah. And my blind spot is about blind spots. And I... I <laughs>
0: What does that mean, your blind spot is about blind spots?
1: Well, this is what started me writing this book. My blind spot is that I will hold other people's blind spots for them Mm. so that I can stay safe and stay in relationships. The
0: enabler.
1: Yes. This might be at work. This might be at home, wherever it is. It's like I won't point out what is so unconscious over there because... That might mean I'll lose something. So for me, lose connection, lose a sense of safety, which isn't real safety.
0: Right. So here I am. I can't feel vulnerable. It's a big blind spot. And so you're like colluding with that.
1: Exactly. I collude and I agree not to see your blind spot, even though I see it. Right. And then, you know, the sort of grand finale of my blind spot is that I then point out the blind spot eventually.
0: In the other person. In
1: the other person. Uncharacteristically often, because I've been holding it this whole time. And I go, hey, do you know you do this? It hurts. It sucks. It's too much for me.
0: And that goes over incredibly well. Yeah.
1: It's amazing how people love to hear that. I
0: bet they do. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. So your blind spot about blind spots is somewhat self-defeating.
1: Yes, Yeah, it is. And I've seen this pattern very deeply and very clearly. And now I know the signs of when I'm doing this so that I no longer need to take that responsibility to hold someone else's blind spots. Actually, I want to write another book called The Narcissist Paradox.
0: Wow. Good title.
1: Thank you. Which is where, you know, it's just as grandiose to hold someone else's unconsciousness as they are grandiose to think that they're perfect.
0: Right. Wow, interesting. Now you, as I said, you're a non-dual teacher. You spend a lot of time leading retreats in non-dual awareness. And, you know, from that perspective, which we can talk about some, but from that perspective, wouldn't this be considered just, you know, fixing your imaginary ego, (laughs) right? Like, isn't it fascinating that you as a non-dual teacher are digging into all this, what we might say, illusory, egoic material? What's up with that?
1: Well, it's fun mm-hmm. and I don't think we can afford not to because it just seems like half the equation to see things as they are and the other half being, you know, what does it look like to actually live this out and to stop harming? I mean, it's a deeply ethical and wise kind of inclination to stop harming oneself and others and to look and be revealed to oneself and to look and have a clarity come that is matching of what the deeper knowing is. But the clarity comes through this integrative behavior and activity. And we spiritually bypass the heck out of ourselves by just seeing clearly, by seeing the nature of mind. And I think that a lot of the spiritual teaching is done by men for which that transcendent, clear knowing is a very safe. Obviously, men have been wounded by women. Women have been wounded by men, men and men, women, women, etc. But there's an incredible amount of wounding that sets us up to think that our spiritual system is the best way or the only way of seeing or the safest, ultimately, way of seeing And this looking at one's blind spots, looking at the mess of your life, being kind with it, takes us out of a bypass of that material. It's very rich, actually, to look at it and one-sided not to.
0: Do you find that when people who are in a non-dual tradition begin to encounter the material you're describing, they resist that?
1: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, and hang out in the transcendent one that sees what's arising. And, you know, you can have someone notice the hell out of their anger for 30 years. Mm. Like, oh, there it is again. There it is again. But not get closer to it. There's one way, you know, I'll probably work with some level of anxiety in my life. I don't feel in touch with it right now. I'm sure it'll come back. And there's a way that I could just keep noticing it in its density and its way that it kind of takes over and then step back into this transcendent seeing of the arising and do that again and again, hoping that it just kind of lessens or, you know, the bigger space kind of helps it to be there without being totally lost in and identified in. Or I can engage with it, encounter it, ask it what it wants what does it need? Is there an action I can take to actually bring it closer to home so that it's not shadowed and pushed down into something that's apart from this that I am?
0: It's been interesting. We were just describing what's going on politically. It's been very fascinating to see how Many people right now, especially people who are involved in a meditation practice or a spiritual practice, are just completely bypassing the whole need to engage with what's going on politically, economically, culturally, and just saying, you know, it's all good.
1: Absolutely. And it's not all good to do that. And yeah, it's embarrassing when I see that happening. And I feel, you know, I'm trying to do what I can. I think we each can do what we can personally to really engage. I know Rev. Angel Kyoto Williams is doing some beautiful work around engaged Buddhism and... Others. And, you know, for myself, I do what I can. There was just this shooting of an unarmed black man in Sacramento. Yeah. And, you know, I call the Sacramento Police Department. Can I pro bono create a program for you? You know, I mean, it's what Mm. I can do. Yeah. I don't know if they'll say yes, but other places, like the United Nations, is so.
0: Yeah. And to me, that. Compared to just kicking back and saying, well, it's all already perfect and therefore I can, you know, hang out in my meditation room and breathe, just doesn't cut it.
1: It doesn't. It doesn't. It's actually unethical, I would say. You know, it's harmful.
0: Yeah. So now if we imagine here we are doing our meditation practice and now you Kelly boys are recommending that we start digging in and contacting this blind spot... How is that going to affect our actual practice itself? People often seem to be concerned that it's going to pull them out of, you know, kind of this oneness and get them involved in the messy, slimy, dirty, difficult machinations of their ego. Is that what happens?
1: Mm -hmm. In one sense, yes. Uh, In the sense that If you're taking refuge or shelter in this oneness and you do reach out and contact these shadowy, perhaps scary parts of yourself, yes, it may pull you out of that. And in pulling you out and going in and through, it deepens the understanding of oneness. Because it's like if my understanding of oneness only has to do with peaceful transcendent sitting on a cushion, that's not what I know is oneness.
0: Mm. So you're saying that actually being willing to kind of come out of the blissful void and engage is going to actually deepen the blissful void?
1: Absolutely. There's less that's refused. I think there's something so important about the refusal and seeing our own spiritual blind spots around the practices that we have and the ways that they help us refuse our lives.
0: You mentioned the gender aspect. Do you think that this particular form of bypassing is a male thing, or do you find it happening with everybody?
1: Um, I think that we all bypass in our own ways. Yeah. And, and you can bypass right into the content and forget about the clear seeing. Right. So, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's both ways. And I do think it's interesting that yeah, most spiritual teachers are men, and a lot of the spiritual seekers or people who are in those circles are women. And so there's a way that we're set up to think that the more masculine view and understanding and insight is the way that then we as women need to fit ourselves into. And then I think that men miss out on the tremendous richness and depth and flow of the feminine or the female knowing, the female practice. So describe
0: to me what you would call the masculine view of this.
1: I would say it's directional, transcendent, clear, formulaic, and has systems of thinking kind of laid out. If you look at the different amazing teachers like Shinzen Young, who I love and I've interviewed and you know him very well. What a formula, like what a system he has for being able to look at the mind. I mean, it's actually incredible. Richard Miller with iRest has created this whole system. It's beautiful.
0: Yes. So there's this linear, rational, structural matrix type systems.
1: Yes. And there's a way that's like, I know, you know, and not that a truly integrated person is not going to say, you know, I know, and I have the one answer, but there's a way that the masculine goes, I know I got this, you know, I know here's the structure, here's how this works. So I'm safe. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And then what would you describe as the feminine knowing?
1: (laughs) I can only speak for myself, really, and in some of the female teachers I know and, and teachers that have the feminine style. The feminine knowing is more fluid, slightly hazy in a clear way. Maybe a deeper connection with silence, like an embodied silence. More comfortable with being at the edge of the unfolding unknown, more comfortable with not having a structure, not having any kind of a sense of need to even explain mm-hmm. what is known. Yeah, being a female teacher is interesting because I think people are not going to really be listening to you.
0: <laughs> What'd you say? <laughs>
1: Let alone your age, you know, it's like, forget about it. Yeah. But, um, you know, we know from research that people rate their professors, if they have a male and female, they're always going to rate their male professor higher. You yeah. know, there's a sense that, you know, we're inculturated to listen to the masculine telling us how it is, and including women, we're inculturated not to listen to women. And so it's very interesting for me to not only have a feminine style of teaching, but to be a female teacher in this realm where everyone has a method and everyone has this like clear way of illuminating the path, which is beautiful. But there are limitations to that. And there's actually something deep to be learned from women who have also a deep practice, but who might not be articulating in the same way or pushing themselves out there as, hey, I've got this system, check me out.
0: Yeah, so it's interesting if you don't have a system and you don't have a flag you're planting in the ground and you're not making a lot of noise, you might just get entirely ignored right now. Yes. Yeah, so what do we do about that?
1: Well, I think that men can invite women onto the stage, as it were, and actually act, even if you have to act, but act like they know something you don't know.
0: You could even bring them onto your podcast.
1: Exactly. Just like what you're doing. I mean, it's the same thing with the race conversation that we're having right now in the States. There's a necessity for us to use our platform, the forms of power that are invisible to us to give voice to those that don't have voice and to have That challenging conversation, that sort of awkward conversation that you don't know how to have about race, it has to be had right now. And the same thing with gender. Tell me more. Well, that awkward conversation of actually saying what's there, you know, I think it's like a black and white person in the room is like the white person goes, I have this white privilege. I don't want to like misstep and say the wrong thing so that I offend you so I'm not going to say anything. We don't have time for that anymore. Yeah. We have to have those awkward conversations where we go, teach me, show me my privilege, show me what I don't see, show me the power that's invisible to me. And in the same way, I think, you know, men saying, I'm going to have this awkward conversation. What's it like to be a woman? Like, what do you know that I don't know? You know, just simple questions like that, that might actually invite a more full view of the spiritual path.
0: Kelly, what's it like to be a female meditation teacher?
1: It's interesting because I don't feel like I have much to say. And yet I have a lot that I want to share. And amidst the sea of voices that are out there, I'm not sure that I really want to, you know, self-promote and do all the stuff that seems to need to be done for people to take you seriously. You have
0: to build a platform.
1: Yeah, exactly. I don't have that in me for whatever reason, but yet I have this real impetus and desire and drive actually to share. So I'm exploring. I don't know. I'm teaching retreats a little bit and doing fun work with the United Nations and we'll see how this unfolds. But I'm a hesitant teacher for sure. Yeah. So as a female teacher, I'll walk into Esalen to teach and go up to the counter and they'll say, oh, who are you here to assist? (laughs) and
0: else <laughs> so there's a male teacher you must be the assistant for
1: exactly and i'll say oh no actually i'm here to teach and i've taught at eslin both with my colleague john prendergast and also without him and every time i go up to that counter it's the eslin counter it's like oh so wait what do you mean you're here to teach your own workshop You know, it's like, yeah, actually, yeah, that's what's happening. Or, you know, I just went to a secondhand store and some woman said, oh, are you a student? And I said, no, actually, I just wrote a book on blind spots. And, you know, she literally took off her glasses and looked at me, really, you? And so there's this way, yeah, I have to, as a female teacher, somehow assert yourself, I guess, to get taken seriously. But I don't tend to assert myself, so I just don't get taken seriously. (laughs) Another thing that I think is important for men on the spiritual path is to learn This is going to sound weird, but to be held, to learn to be held.
0: What does that mean?
1: Well, you can look at it from the point of view as a physical holding, the point of view as an energetic kind of knowing that there's this unconditioned presence or unconditional loving presence that is holding me. And that my whole nervous system gets online with this. Whether you believe it or not actually is a little irrelevant, but to slow down enough to actually soften your whole system to deeply know that you're safe and that you're seen and that you're held. Because in knowing that deeply as a practice, as a meditation practice, that will change the way that you do your practice and that you live your life will come from a more balanced, settled place. It's of deep importance. It might sound strange that I'm suggesting to develop a practice around being held, but I think that it could be something that allows for the softening so that a vulnerability can appear and a deeper clear scene can appear.
0: And how do you recommend people do that within their traditions?
1: Well, if there is the practice of, you know, being in touch with body sensations, the movements of the mind, the thoughts, emotions, then utilizing those tools to locate a deep sense, felt sense of being held. So this can be in your mind's eye, literally by a loved one, where you begin to kind of relax and soften. And this can also be simply, if this is in your practice, to feel it energetically, to sense quality of awareness that is actually not just spacious, but holding or loving or having those kinds of qualities, nurturing qualities. And to enliven that, you know, as Rick Hansen says, to place your attention, growing the good. In that same way to actually direct your attention in meditation toward those nurturing, holding qualities.
0: Mm. Something about the way you're describing both this holding or warm embrace and also the feminine qualities of the spiritual path reminds me a little bit of something that seems Like it might be coming from the opposite end of the spectrum, which is sort of the David Chapman like meta-rationality piece where, you know, and we can get into such a technical discussion about that. But in its manifest form, it has this real looseness with structure and real flow with ideas. It's not real concerned with having the one right answer or the one right path.
1: Yeah, I was listening to David and I loved that interview you did with him. And I found it interesting as he walked through the stages, you know, that you get to that stage of kind of a little bit of nihilistic and where you're feeling lonely on the path and you're really committed to the deeper practices and you're seeing through a lot of the different systems that you've bought into and then this more flowy kind of an understanding And I think that's very akin to what I'm speaking of, actually, which is where there's not a need to be the knower or to know something, but yet you know deeply. So it's holding the knowing and the not knowing together. So one of the biases that Daniel Kahneman speaks to is the hindsight bias, where we think the past is knowable and it's not as knowable as we think. And because of that, We think reality is predictable. Mm. We think we can know the future. And Gerard Gigerenzer out of the Max Planck Institute, I bring his work into my book on intuition in terms of where does our intuition go right for us. And he basically says, you know, that there's hindsight. Well, how about future sight where you're dealing in uncertainty? And what I like to call it is present sight where you're dealing in uncertainty and certainty. So you're not also shunning the certainty that you have. But it's flexible and open, and it's a wave that's being ridden right at the edge of the unknown and the uncertain. In terms of not knowing while you know, it's important to let go of being an expert without letting go of what you know. And really like Gerd Gigerenzer's work. he's a, No,
0: you mentioned his name before. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Gigerenzer? Gerd
0: Gigerenzer? Gerd. Gerd.
1: Gigerenzer. Ah. I, he's a social psychologist at the Max Planck Institute and has written books on gut instincts, on intuition, on those same rules of thumb that Daniel Kahneman speaks about, you know, what lead us in a direction of poor Mm -hmm. decision-making. Gigerenzer talks about, well, where do those rules of thumb lead us in a direction of positive decision-making? They're there for a reason. So they work a lot of the time.
0: Right. So to summarize what Kahneman's saying, that we have these very brief, easy to access decision heuristics that we just kind of are right most of the time. And it's really, really low energy for our brain to kind of make these easy decisions over and over again. And sometimes they are horrifically incorrect.
1: Exactly.
0: And so for certain types of decisions, we need to slow down to this other form of thinking where we're not just iterating through like a decision tree.
1: That's right. And that ironically, sometimes our slow thinking system just confirms those biases because they feel so believable. Oh, yeah. And it's also cognitively easy on our brain because we're not using up glucose to think about, you know, what it is that we think is accurate. We just assume we're accurate.
0: Investigating the feeling of being true or the feeling of something being real is very fascinating.
1: Yes. One thing that Gigerenzer speaks to, which I find really fascinating, is that sometimes knowing less is better. And he proves it. You know, they've done studies with stock market traders and novices. And actually, the stock market traders and the novices, they operate at the same level of success. But then if you have someone who knows some, but not an expert, they'll actually outperform the stock market traders because they know less. It's called the less is more rule of thumb. Hmm. And it's also akin to the recognition rule of thumb where, oh, I've heard of this company before. So I'm just going to say that I should invest in their stocks. Whereas when you're an expert and you know everything about all the companies, it actually limits you and you perform just like a novice.
0: And so is this an argument for ignorance?
1: (laughs) Not total ignorance. And that knowing less can be helpful. And so this kind of endless quest for knowledge and to know everything about everything is sometimes it actually hinders us, and it's being a little bit less precise, which is more helpful. The book by Leslie Valiant, probably approximately correct, speaks to this around algorithms and how you can operate within an environment that's more complex than yourself, but it's not always good to know everything about that environment. Mm.
0: And, of course, in Zen practice, we have the whole concept of beginner's mind or don't know mind. Yes. Yeah.
1: Yes. And what I'm saying, actually, in my book is I'm very curious in terms of blind spots and behaviors that are unconscious and automatic. So we have this glucose-saving cognitive ease that helps us, you know, make decisions that aren't necessarily in our best good. And how in seeing and illuminating what's unclear to us— we can actually move the needle on our default system from that kind of unconscious automaticity to conscious automaticity, where there may be some effort involved in the moving of the needle, mm-hmm. but that using both meditation practice and insight, hacking all the way through to the core of something, which will get you there quicker, and that practice helps you integrate it, you can actually live more consciously, but where are these behaviors, these wise, more ethical, more compassionate behaviors and more clear seeing just comes naturally and has cognitive ease to it as well so that we don't have to just start here and think, oh, my goodness, I have to now see everything and make all this effort to try to be this perfect spiritual version of myself, which is not at all what I'm saying. It's more if you see through very clearly, very deeply, very precisely, then this just up levels the living of this knowing The living of being a good human
0: in short we just want to see our blind spots and embrace them
1: yeah there's part of seeing it and embracing them but there's also getting the gifts because they're just usually hidden forms of power authenticity truth that we have also repressed along with whatever we felt was unworthy
0: so in seeing them and embracing them they then can deliver their gifts unto us yes it's a powerful thought so here you are, this, like, Ohio woman, right, who woke up in her bathtub 10 years ago. <laughs> what is it that you want to say to listeners?
1: Mm. Well, first of all, bless all our hearts. This is a level playing field. You know, we're all in this together. We all have blind spots. We all have unconsciousness. We will continue to. Nobody ever gets to a place where they don't have unconsciousness anymore. Not anyone. Mm. And something around just, you know, let's help each other to take ourselves less seriously and to learn. You know, I like how Rick Hansen says, learn to learn better. Yeah. And to discover really creative solutions for the complex problems our world has right now. It needs us to be out of our own way to do that. And I think in helping each other kind of be lighthearted about where we go blind and and how we hurt each other even, and being more forgiving is key. And I think when you've seen that you have everything in you, all the shadow that's possible in the world, it is contained within you. It's way harder to point the finger outside.
0: Now, you are also a Christian, is that correct?
1: Yeah, I grew up in the Christian tradition, and I have a lot of appreciation for what that instilled in me. And I also have a healthy dose of skepticism around the forms that it can take that are uh, very damaging.
0: So what part of Christianity or what aspects of your Christian belief have sort of survived through your skepticism and through your non-dual awakening and so on?
1: Well, I'd say, you know, this aspect of being held of wholeness in Christianity, there's a sense that you know, I can cast all my cares on Jesus for he cares for me. Mm. You know, that's, and, you know, I can lay my burdens at the foot of the cross. I mean, I grew up evangelical Christian, yeah. right? Yeah. And it was believed like, this is a guy whose, you know, form I am worshiping. And so there's something about that sort of offloading of burdens that's awesome.
0: Yes,
1: and also about the devotional nature, in the sense that I am actually deeply held. Why not believe that? I mean, there's literally not a big draw for me to be nihilistic, hmm. without downplaying the positive sides of nihilism, because I think there are some just clear seeing around just ooh, empty. Yeah. But that was one of the pieces.
0: Do you currently relate to your spirituality as being an embodied? you know, physical being named Jesus? Or is it more about this background of witnessing awareness? Like, how do you work with that?
1: Yeah, I do no longer believe it in that sort of a crystallized form of what you're saying is more about the background witnessing awareness. And I think there's something to be said for he had this insight, this clear seeing. And yeah, then there's this whole system of belief that was created around that. But that original clear seeing feels very clear. And that's what I carry with me, I think. Mm. And also, you know, the simple things like do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. That's a nice rule to live by. Yes. Yeah. Not that Christians live it out, but I have a lot of respect for the ethical components and the loving, caring communities that Christians can inhabit. And a lot of disdain for the abuses of power and the way that things are taken so literally, and there's an othering of us in them.
0: Sure. Although those are present in every religious tradition that I've ever encountered. Exactly. Yeah.
1: Well, I'd love to take a moment and thank you for what you're doing. Because, oh. yeah, I thank you, Michael, because. There's a way that you're having conversations with people that's very creatively stimulating to me as a listener. But then also you're bringing this this level of authentic conversation into a space that is right now kind of people have their talking points and their shtick, which is just what we do as humans. But there's a way that the way it doesn't
0: burn as much glucose. (laughs)
1: Yeah, I've burned a lot of glucose sitting here. I'm actually. <laughs> well, yes, Anne. So I just want to thank you for what you're doing because you're kind of bringing in this more edgy, alive, authentic way to have conversation with people who are all just learning something on the path. Nobody's a guru or anything like that. It's just, it's really nice how you're sharing this with a wider audience.
0: Thanks. Yeah. You know, these are just the conversations I want to have. And it's been really, really, I don't know, just wonderful and cool and fun to see that other people like listening to them, too.
1: Mm -hmm. It's a real joy.
0: Awesome. Well, thanks for coming on the show, Kelly.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: That's it for this episode of Deconstructing Yourself. I'd like to let you know about an upcoming retreat with me this summer in Costa Rica. From August 3rd to the 10th, we will come together to focus on non-dual meditation practice, with a particular theme of embodiment of awakening in meditation and in life. For seven days I'll be giving non-dual meditation teachings, practices, and guided meditations, as well as personal meditation instruction, to each member of the group. The retreat will be hosted at the Blue Spirit Retreat Center, located in the Nosara region of Costa Rica's Pacific coast. The retreat center is perched on a hilltop overlooking the ocean, and a three-mile white sand beach that is a protected turtle refuge. The pristine nature, subtropical climate, and members of the Deconstructing Yourself Sangha will create a unique environment for your meditation, retreat, If you're interested, check out deconstructingyourself.org where there's a link to the information page. I look forward to seeing you there. If you enjoyed the podcast, please recommend it to a friend or talk about it on social media. Doing that helps it find its way to more people who might be interested. If you're moved to support the podcast, you can do that by contributing to the production costs on my Patreon page.